Galatians 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have his own have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for how um, you speak through it by your spirit to your people. And you call those who are not your people to be your people through it. So, Lord, do both. Do as you please in this service through your word, by your spirit this morning. We submit ourselves gladly in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so remember these words um, from last week, because I said they would be fitting for this week as well, and and possibly um, even more fitting this week as they were last week, because last week was designed to kind of set this week up. Here are the words they want you to recall. Your body... And your mind are inseparable, and your body has a way of outing your mind. Those words were initially spoken in a medical context that we are applying in a spiritual context here. So as we've tracked with Paul's recovery of the gospel in the churches of Galatia, we know a few things. We know that the gospel centers on a justification that is by faith alone, that it's grounded in the death and resurrection of Christ alone, and that it's according to the eternal, the covenantal, the glory-seeking purposes of our God alone. And while we often say that God's purposes are both for his glory and for our good, and that those purposes do not run contradictory to each other, the good that's designed to come to us came in the person and work of Jesus. He came, he accomplished our redemption in his death on the cross. He rose from the dead. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father, who is the one seeking his own glory through applying that redemption accomplished by his Son towards sinners like us, who do not in any way, shape, or form deserve the good that he has designed to come to us through Jesus' redemption, but who only deserve Judgment and wrath because of our rebellion against God. But it is precisely through the undeserved, the unsolicited good that comes to unworthy sinners through the redemption accomplished by Christ and applied by the Spirit that Jesus is worshipped, that Jesus is praised, and by means of that, the glory that the Father seeks is fulfilled and received by him. So everywhere sinners are regenerated by the Spirit from death to life, 
in union with Jesus and from unbelief to faith as the gospel of the finished work of Jesus is proclaimed. And everywhere those regenerated are justified based upon the faith to which they have been regenerated and not just justified as in declared righteous in union with Jesus, but adopted as in declared sons and daughters of the Father as well in union with Jesus. And not only justified and adopted, but promised an eternal inheritance that begins immediately as the Spirit who regenerated is sent to permanently indwell every heart that He regenerates so that He might apply the freedom won in Jesus' redemption to formerly bound sinners so that in them the triumph of Jesus might be on display again and again and again, day after day, even as the Holy Spirit quietly and steadily and faithfully conforms those people to the image of Jesus. Where that work of the Trinity is being carried out on planet Earth, Christ is exalted in his triumph. And the Father is glorified because his Son and his finished work is being praised and reflected in his people by the Spirit and through his people toward others. So God's purposes for his own glory do not come at your or my expense, but in our greatest good, which is his saving us from beginning to end. And that salvation always affects the worship and the praise and the adoration of his son and love toward others in Jesus' name. And we, and we spent probably the majority of this study on the, the inner aspect, the personal, the sanctifying, the assuring work the Spirit does in us. But in these final verses of Galatians, Paul, he decisively turns outward. He sets us up for it in verse 25 last week with the question followed by the command. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, which I defined last week as to keep in step with the Spirit is to not only claim eternal life in Christ as the Spirit bears continual witness of Christ through the Word, hopefully every day of your life personally, and every time we gather together corporately, the Spirit bearing witness of the ongoing sufficiency of Jesus' death to accomplish your salvation, calling you again and again and again to stake your eternal salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, but then to stake the all of my hope of life in him today as well. So not just for eternity, but for life in Christ by the person and the work of the Spirit who indwells us, who indwells us for sanctification, for assurance, and for the freedom to, as Paul said in Galatians 5.1, to stand firm and to never again yield to the flesh with its sinful passions and and desires. And now I'm saying is the kind of final piece, not that piece, the final piece of this gospel puzzle that Paul puts together for his confused readers in the churches of Galatia is the effect or the result of the gospel both in us and working its way out of us that I'm narrowing down to that form of the word peace. The peace 
accomplished in the gospel and that comes through the gospel by the spirit is not only eternal, but it's also temporal. So it's not only future when all of this chaos that reigns is made right and the curse is lifted and the full and the final redemption for which we and all of creation cries out comes to pass. But it's here and it's now as well. It is not just not yet, but it is already. And inseparable from that, the peace of the gospel is both personal and corporate. As a matter of fact, peace is part of the sanctifying work of the spirit, that the Spirit is doing in you to conform you to the image of Christ so that your inner life is no longer characterized by chaos and turmoil and discontentment but a peace that is inseparable from an ongoing trust that Christ's death has reconciled us to the Father, whose wrath no longer hangs over us because it was poured out on his Son. So the already temporal aspect is both personal and internal and inseparable from love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, but it's also external and corporate as well. And that's the step that Paul's taking here in this text. And probably the better way to say it is, it's not internal and external or personal and corporate, but it is external and corporate because it is internal and personal. That's what he's saying here. In our text, verses 1 through 5, focus on the work of the Spirit to affect peace corporately through personal responsibility. Verses 6 through 10 then focus on the personal responsibility to affect corporate peace. And if you're paying close attention to those words, I'm basically saying that verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 10 say the same thing. The difference between the two sets of verses is one of emphasis, not necessarily one of subject matter. So here's how I'm organizing these verses. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, we have corporate peace through personal responsibility. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, we have personal responsibility for corporate peace. So our time this morning is going to be spent here. Corporate peace through personal responsibility. Verses 1 through 5, center on three commands given to individuals but in the context of the church. And for some reason, in in prep this week, I, I felt the need to say it like that because if I only point out the corporate aspect that's clear here, I'm afraid that you process that as from the top down. As in leaders lead these charges within the church and you follow And what that communicates is you wait on these commands to be led in them. And even in your following, you're passive. Maybe casting a vote in the end. Or reflecting after the fact on what, quote unquote, we did together. So I'm choosing words on purpose to say that these commands are given to the church. And that what is being commanded in the commands can only be carried out in the context of the body. But I'm saying these commands are given to individuals that compose the body so that you feel the weight of the commands. Restore those caught in transgression. Bear one another's burdens and test your own work. 
And I think that the proof that I'm not off there, the proof of that in the text is in verse 1, not only when Paul addresses the brothers, but when he comments further on who the brothers are later in the verse. So here's verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So you who are spiritual is not defining a subset of particularly spiritual people within the greater body or among the brothers. But all who've been regenerated by the Spirit and are indwelt by Him. In other words, every true believer. This is why Doug Moo, a great commentator, translates you who are spiritual as you who are spirit people. And he's not doing that for convenience sake, but for clarity's sake in an ongoing effort to keep chapter 6's emphasis on what we're commanded to do inseparable to who we are being made to be by the work of the Spirit in us. In other words, you who are spirit people is calling upon all who would answer the question that was posed in chapter 5 and verse 25, do you live in the Spirit, by the Spirit, in Christ, all who would answer that question in the affirmative. He's calling you to restore, bear burdens, and test your own work. These are not things exceptionally spiritual people do because they are spiritual, but which every person who has been raised to live and life and faith by the Spirit and it was indwelt by him for his sanctifying purposes does. When Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 5 that the Spirit leads his people to faith-filled, hope-filled, Spirit-empowered obedience for the glory of God and the good of others, the three commands of chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, certainly fall under that list. So when he addresses the brothers, he's talking to you. If you have life in the Spirit in union with Jesus, you are the Spirit people for whom Christ crucified the flesh with its desires toward conceit, according to verse 26. Because you think you're better than those caught in transgression or provoking, because in your flesh you'd rather rub it in the face of those who are caught in transgression, that they've fallen and you think you stand. Even though there seems to be a strong Warning against that very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, which says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. A number of other desires of the flesh that Paul lists in chapter 5 could certainly apply here, but I think you get the point. The point is, chapter 6 and verse 1 did not come out of nowhere. It is directly tied to, if we live in the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit who is conforming us to the image of Jesus by bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, overcoming, or in Paul's words, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires toward things like conceit 
or arrogant rubbing it in the face of those who fall or wishing evil on others because you envy them, etc., etc., etc. If you are alive in Christ, it means you are united to Christ. Or perhaps it's better said the other way around. If you are united to Christ, you are alive in him and you live by the power of his indwelling spirit, which means the desires of the flesh remain crucified. And the fruit of the spirit's indwelling work to conform you to the image of Jesus manifests itself through you here as you run to those who fall in pursuit of their restoration, rather than turn from them in conceited disgust. Or rub it in their face so that they feel the pain that you feel as the result of their sin. Or silently, sinfully wish evil upon them for their actions. Brothers and sisters, verse 26 is not what people of the Spirit do. But verse 1 is. Because it is what the Spirit does in his people as, as he conforms them to the image of Christ. There's, a, there's just a few um, things that I, I think would be helpful to point out in the text, to, I guess just to help you understand it better. First, in reference to the word caught, in verse 1, if you're thinking Busted. So if you think verse 1 is saying, if anyone is busted in transgression, I just I think you're thinking too narrowly. I don't think Paul is distinguishing the way transgression is discovered in a person, but what transgression does to a person. So the theoretical person that Paul is referring to here may in fact be busted in his sin or he may not. He may come humbly admitting his sin. But Paul's bigger purpose here, I think, is to remind those of us who are people of the Spirit. Meaning, people who are the recipients of undeserved, unearned, unsolicited grace for our regeneration and sanctification and justification and union and adoption. With so much more promise to come, he's reminding us who know that we didn't earn this, we didn't deserve this, we didn't ask for this or solicit this. He's reminding us of the nature of sin. And he's calling us to keep in step with his work to apply the finished work of Jesus to others who are trapped in sin so that they might know the power of the gospel to either set them free in Christ and reconcile them to God, or most likely in this text, to know the power of the gospel to set them free again and to restore them to fellowship with Christ and with his body. That's what he's calling us to pursue here. So that was one. Second, on the other hand, If you're the transgressor here, and you're thinking because he commands the church, restore? If you think the text is saying, see, don't judge. Just forgive. Restore as if nothing happened and move on. Brother, sister, you're wrong. The picture given of you is one in 
bondage. And Paul is almost certainly referring here to Jesus' words in Matthew 18 that we like to call his words regarding church discipline. So Paul here is calling upon the church composed of people who have their life in Christ and by the Spirit to seek the restoration of other brothers and sisters who are trapped in sin. He's setting restoration as the goal, but he's not laying out the process. And I don't think he feels compelled to lay out the process, number one, because it's not his purpose, but number two, because he knew that his words here would call his readers back to Jesus' words, which do lay out the process. So he's not calling for some twisted kind of pity towards sinners that just overlooks sin and moves on as if we're always, everything's always normal. He's setting forth restoration as the goal, and he's focusing on the role of the redeemed, regenerate, spirit-filled, sanctified, fruit-bearing body in that process, as opposed to the rub it in your face, look down your nose, turn away and wish evil approach of those who do not have the spirit. But he's leaving the process to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, which words do require in pursuit of the goal of restoration, private confrontation of sin. One or two others, if your brother doesn't listen. And then the body itself. Excommunication and withholding of the Lord's Supper being the charge, if he still will not listen to the body. But not as the end, but as the means to the end that both Jesus and Paul hold out, which is restoration. Knowing that sin not only ensnares, but breaches fellowship between God and man, and man and members of the body, we seek. Knowing that, we seek privately, in groups, and as a body, the restoration of our professing brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. Knowing that their souls are at stake. And their repentance and restoration when confronted over their sin by another brother or sister is a major confirmation or denial that they are alive in Christ and possess the Spirit. But Paul's main concern here is not on the guy trapped in sin, but on you and on me as people of the Spirit, keeping in step with his work in you to conform you to the image of Christ by bearing the fruit of the Spirit in you so that the life that you live in this body of flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God and reflect his image to the ends of the earth in the way that you interact with others in the gospel. That's what he cares about in you, because if that's not going on in you and coming out of you, you are not alive in Christ and you do not have the Spirit. Notice also that he's not just focused on what you do, but how you do it. It's another affirmation that what we are called to outwardly is the result of what he's doing inwardly. So it's the You who are spiritual should restore him. How? In what manner, he says? In a spirit of gentleness. So we're meant by that key word. We're meant to recall just a few er, sentences earlier and see the connection between verse 23. So in a spirit of gentleness, just thinking, I just heard that word, 
few verses earlier, but the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. There's a connection there between what the Spirit is doing in you in His sanctifying work and what the Spirit intends to do through you toward others for their good so that they see and know and praise the glory of God's grace in Christ and the gospel. But don't miss where the gentleness comes from. And I don't like the way I, I worded that. But So obviously the gentleness is coming from, as in by means of the Spirit, He's bearing this fruit in you. But in the text, one of the other realities that he's done in you and to which he calls you here is to remember every time you hear of a brother or a sister who is trapped in sin, that that could so easily be you. Because the passions and desires of your flesh still rage, which is why you are called every moment of every day to desperate faith in the work of Christ and desperate reliance on the Spirit. Why? Lest you to be tempted. If the humility of that acknowledgement is absent in you, you will not display the inseparable fruit of gentleness. And you will not humbly, gently seek the restoration of those who fall. You will be back at verse 26. Smug, rub it in your face, Wish evil, and you will display that you are probably even worse off than the one that you, in your sin, despise because of their sin. Verse 3 so powerfully describes the non-gentle, non-watchful, beyond temptation, smug, rub it in your face, wish evil on others person. And shows that it's not an overstatement to say that the per- that that person is in greater danger than the brother or the sister who's caught in sin, but who is actually receptive and responsive to the efforts of other brothers and sisters to restore them. Verse three says, "If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself." I think the idea in verse three is that the person who is isolated from the body, who doesn't need the body, doesn't need others, doesn't need these silly, shallow wrestlings with sin, and others telling you that you're in sin, you just need who? You, the Spirit, and your Bible, right? And it's ironic how seldom the Spirit seems to speak through the Word to those kind of people about their own sin and how often he seems to point out the sin of others. Obviously, I'm saying that sarcastically because I think they're misreading, hearing another voice, probably other than the spirits. I just find it interesting how often those who isolate themselves from the body seem to be among the most arrogant, smug, unhelpful, blind to their own sin, but somehow locked in on the sin of others, people. Which is why Paul says at the end of verse 3, you're self-deceived. If that's you, you just, you're self-deceived. Because if you've been joined to Christ by the work of the Spirit, you have been joined inseparably to his body as well. 
where you are called to submission and accountability and where the work that the Spirit is doing in you is designed to come pouring out of you for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ and where the work the Spirit is doing in them is designed by him to come pouring into you for your good in the body of Christ. It's, ad- it's admittedly somewhat confusing in the ESV because the ESV puts a period between the word gentleness and what they have is the command keep. They put a period when there should be a comma, followed by keeping as a participle rather than a command. So, so the command is restore, restore, in what manner? In a spirit of gentleness. All the while, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That last phrase is subordinate to restore. It's not a separate command. It's the awareness in the process that this could be you. This is you outside the work of the Spirit today in your life. This is you by nature. This is you apart from the redemption, accomplished by Jesus, and applied by the Spirit. And this will be you again outside of faith alone, by grace alone. And it is this constant awareness that reminds you that your sinning brother or sister is not the enemy here. Don't treat them like the enemy here. Listen to these Listen to these powerful words by Timothy George. It's kind of a long quote, come in two slides, but here here it is. The myth of self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but rather a sign of pride. Paul's maxim in verse 3 is aimed at this perverted understanding of the self. If a man thinks he's somebody, he is deceiving himself, for that very thought proves that he's nobody. Such an attitude of conceited self-importance leads to two fundamental failures in relationship. One, the refusal to bear the burdens of others. For that would be a task too menial and deprecating for a person who thinks he's something. The other, the refusal to allow anyone else to help shoulder one's own burdens since that would be an admission of weakness and need. To live in this way, however, is to practice the art of self Deception, for no man is an island entire to himself. There's two more commands in verses 1 through 5. Bear one another's burdens and test your own work. Notice in reference to the first that we're, we're told to bear one another's burdens. It's tied directly to the restoration goal of verse 1 in reference to the person who's trapped in sin. And the two pictures there are absolutely consistent. If verse 1 is portraying a sinning brother trapped in sin and us seeking his restoration through the process laid out by Jesus in Matthew 18, the picture of verse 2 in reference to burden bearing is of the burden bearer as inevitably collapsing under the weight of his burden. In other words, he can't. You can't bear the burdens of life on your own. You weren't designed to. You will collapse. You will faint. 
So not only are we called upon in 1 Peter chapter 5 to cast them by faith upon God in prayer because he cares for you, but if we're called here to bear each other's burdens, the implied other side of that call is to receive the care that God bestows on you through his people. And the way these verses seem to work together, it seems that verse 1 is part of verse 2. So part of corporate accountability, part of corporate burden bearing is the process of restoring sinning brothers and sisters. And the burden bearing that we're called to in verse 2, as Paul says, is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And it is the living visible proof that you love the Lord your God supremely. When you love his people with the love with which he loved you, when he bore your burden of the law and its penalty under the law all the way to the cross and collapsed willfully under the weight of it for the salvation of your soul. But there is, even in this text, as John Stott helpfully says, one burden that we cannot share which is the personal accountability that's brought out in verses 4 and 5, as well as the third command in these verses. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. And Paul's not contradicting himself to command in verse 2 to bear each other's burdens, but then to say in verse 5 that each one bears his own load. And I just want to, let me just share the, I mentioned John Stott a minute ago, let me just share the full quote that I'm referring to because I think he really helpfully captures the difference and I just don't want to even try to improve upon it this morning. It says, so we are to bear one another's, one another's burdens, which are too heavy for a man to bear alone, But there is one burden which we cannot share. Indeed, do not need to because it's a pack light enough for every man to carry himself. And that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack and I cannot uh, carry yours. So if the view is eschatological, if Paul's looking to the end of personal accountability before God, which I think is what he's doing here, the, the bear his own load phrase is future then the boasting in the presence of God that he also talks about here, brothers and sisters, is not some twisted, self-centered, take-the-credit boasting in one's own work here in life kind of boasting. But it is a boasting, as Paul advocates in our passage for next week, only in the cross of Christ. But these words remind us that the boasting in the cross of Christ that he's talking about here is not general, but it is deeply, deeply personal. The redemption accomplished for you by Jesus and how the Spirit has transformed you from a self-centered, bound to your own dissatisfied passions, smug, not accountable, uncaring, look down your nose, rub it in your face, wish evil on others, person, and to a much more clear and accurate and helpful image bearer of Jesus in this sin-cursed world. 
even in these bodies of flesh, even despite Satan's best efforts to trap you and ruin you and weigh you down to the point of collapse so that you now run to your brothers and sisters with all humility and gentleness. You run to them to confront them in their sin because you love them with the ultimate goal being that you seek their restoration. And you bear their burdens with them and you share your burdens with them so that they can bear your burdens with you so that you both make it to the end. For the eternal praise of the ultimate restorer and burden bearer of mankind. The God-man, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look to finish this study next week. And we're going to look to finish this week by sharing in the Lord's Supper together. Where all of the promises of his life and death and resurrection are held out before us once again. To be received together by faith and by faith alone. So let's pray toward that end. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that you give your people through your word. Thank you that the work that you do in us is designed by your spirit through his power to come pouring out of us toward others. So this this body called the body of Christ, this local expression of that greater body called Christ Fellowship is not just designed to passively occupy us until Jesus comes, but it's designed to be the realm in which the love and the care that you have and that you've promised to your people is designed to come pouring out into us through your spirit filled spirit and dwelt people my prayer lord this is that this this vital dot would be connected in the heart and the life of Christ fellowship where it's not connected may it be connected knowing that lord this is a major part of the way that we process the gospel not only eternal promises, but real life power here and now, today. And Father, all of this we um, we express is um, is a weight that is uh, too much for us to bear on our own. This has to be a miraculous work that you do in us. Just like when you opened our eyes to see Christ crucified for our sins and saved by faith in him. And so, Lord, we, um, we pray these things with gladness in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I close by saying... that we're going to close the service um, being reminded through the text of the word that what Jesus accomplished for us in his life 
living in our place, fulfilling the law in our place, what he accomplished for us in his atoning death, what he accomplished for us in his triumphant resurrection, what he rules and reigns over right now. They're not just eternal promises that we just endure this life and wait for to come pouring out on us in eternity. They're they're promises that are already, brothers and sisters. We're already in Christ. We already have life in his spirit. We're called again and again and again to receive those promises that are bestowed on us in the gospel. And just like we call you each week to receive it again and again and again, to, to by faith receive the sufficiency of Jesus' death, to deal with your sin, to set you free, to raise you to new life, just as we proclaim that in the word each week, even so we partake in that as we see the bread and the juice passed out to us and called upon to receive by faith. In us, we're receiving that the promises that God has made us in the gospel are true and sufficient, and they're ours today. And, and Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians 11, in light of this weight, for a time of self-examination. That um, I want to offer us as as a church body right now, as we prepare to have the Lord's Supper together. So spend some time in prayer. I'll come in just a few minutes, and I'll, and I'll pray in general over this. We'll distribute the elements, and we'll partake together. So spend some time in prayer.